Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences here in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. With me is Bob Alderink. He is the coordinator of the Natural World Investigate Lab here at the museum. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Wonderful. So, Bob, when did you first start working at the museum? 1994. So you've been here for quite a while. Oh, yeah, a long time. In 94, I started as a science educator, and I stayed in that role for 12 or 13 years. And then when this position, when we built the Nature Research Center, then this job came open for a lab coordinator. And I was like, wow, that sounds like fun. And so that's how I got that job. So tell us what a lab coordinator does. Well, this is a special kind of lab. It's not a research lab. It's called an investigate lab, and it's a public access lab. And what they get to do in here is use the same equipment that all the researchers are using. They learn how to use pipetters. They learn how to use all the different kinds of measuring tools. They get to use some outstanding microscopes. They also get to take classes, certainly in biology, but we also have uh, geology classes. We have even math And from my understanding, you also have a candle-making class. Candle dipping was part of it. They were making beeswax candles because I was a beekeeper for seven years, and I loved it, and I used to have all this free wax, and so I was starting to learn how to make all these candles. But I wanted to do it the way they did in primitive times, like how did colonial Americans dip their beeswax candles? So I created this class where people were recreating those same methods. And then we went out and uh, gathered rushes from the marshes and swamps. You gathered what from the marshes? Rushes. They would look to an ordinary person just like a grass, but they're actually filled with what we call a pith. It's a parenchyma cells, but there's like this white pith. You would strip off all the green part and then you dip it in what's called tallow, which is just rendered beef fat or lamb fat. And then you just light it, and it burns like a candle. That was the main source of light for colonial Americans, not beeswax. Beeswax was expensive, so people saved it for special occasions, like a Sunday dinner or some special event. They'd bring out their beeswax candles. But most of the time, people used rushes to burn. So like Benjamin Franklin, when he was a kid, his dad was a candler in their town. His job, one of his many jobs, was to have to go out in the swamps and collect these rushes. And so I was out there yesterday and the day before out there collecting rushes, just like (laughs) Benjamin Franklin. We brought them in, and then the participants who took the class, they were all stripping the rushes, drying them, soaking them in beef fat. So our whole lab smelled like hamburgers. People walking by, are you guys cooking hamburgers in there? And I'm like... No, we're just rendering beef fat. We're making tallow. And so you had to explain all that. But Because hundreds of years ago, they were dependent on candles, right, for light. This yeah. is what the families needed in order to do their reading. And Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. You didn't flip a switch. You know, you had to, if you wanted light, you had to make the light. Sure. Plain and simple. It was sure. a lot, lot of work. Your college degree is actually in parks and recreation management. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And if a student were interested, what, what does a person who studies parks and recreation management, what sort of career are they looking at? A lot of people took parks and recreation management classes if they wanted to become like a park ranger and work as an interpreter of park, working in some area like that. Or it could be like travel and tourism. If somebody wanted to have a job on a cruise ship, that would actually fall under that as well. You didn't just take just parks and recreation management. You would also take another degree that would support that. So I took biology, and I almost finished with a biology major as well. But you just get, a, in my case, a biology minor, and then I got a parks and recreation major, and that's what I used. Because I thought that I was going to be park ranger doing interpretation because I love nature. I love talking about animals and plants. That's why I got that degree. Sure. When you say doing interpretation, does that mean just speaking with the public and, and informing them about what's happening in the forest? 
Yeah. So like you, you have like a language interpreter who's interpreting like French to English. You have people that interpret if it's science there or nature, they might be interpreting what you're seeing out there. So some person might a layperson or a public might look at a tree and say, well, that's just a tree. The interpreter would say, well, actually, this is a white oak tree. And it was very important to, let's say, the Native Americans because it was their primary source of food before corn, beans and squash came here. You know, so they would interpret all of this different kinds of information that would not be available to a person who just looked at and saw a tree and noticed that squirrels happen to eat the nuts once in a while. Then how did you then transition into science education and then eventually become a coordinator here at the museum? Well, I had two things that I was passionate about in life. One was science and one was early cultures, Native American cultures. So this job kind of allowed me to do both of those. Before I started working at the museum, I used to travel around to all the public schools, like in North Carolina, some in Virginia, in Georgia and Tennessee, and I used to do these big assembly presentations. I'd go into their gymnasium or their multimedia center or whatever, and I would set up all my um, tools and artifacts um, on Native American culture and teach them how people lived back then. And uh, I used to live in a teepee for two years. And you stuff, lived so. in a teepee for two years? Yeah, and it was great because I wanted the full experience. I really <laughs> wanted to know. So like in the middle of winter up in Boone, North Carolina, oh my gosh. you know, it was very cold. But I learned that a teepee was actually a very um, comfortable place to live. Once you knew how to build your fires correctly and have it last throughout the night and where to get your water and stuff, you know, and I was doing that while I was in college, too. As a child, would you do similar things? Did you camp a lot? Did you have activities that sort of this was a natural progression for you? Or what, what was well, your childhood like? I think, well, I've always been interested in nature. But starting in the third grade is when I really got interested in it, like big time. And I was trying to read everything I could. Birds was I was fanatical about as well as Native American culture. And so and I was in kind of a restrictive household. So I wasn't allowed to go out. I didn't spend a lot of time in the woods getting to play and, and, and go camping and do all the things that I just dreamed about doing. So most of my nature experience was my backyard. That was about it. Um, occasionally we go to a park and when we when I got to a park I made full use of that park like where my peers my friends and stuff would be on the swings or the slides I was running around in all the bushes and the trees and running around the um, next to the river right I was just soaking it all crawling around. along the ground seeing what really was down was. there yeah and I was nearsighted so I yeah crawling <laughs> down looking up close that, that's exactly what I was doing until I got glasses <laughs> oh that's fantastic and then so once you had the opportunity to sort of study what you were really in, enjoying and, and had the freedom to choose what you wanted to do. That led well, to... yeah, I went overboard then, <laughs> you know, like moving out into the woods. So, But you know yeah. what? That's, that's wonderful because it's such an authentic experience that you're able to share with others. Mm -hmm. And it's not just something that you've read about, but it's something that you've really experienced yeah. and can't sort of there's something to be said for living it versus just reading about right. it. Right. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of that. Sure. Oh, that's mm -hmm. wonderful. So what are some of your current research projects or some of the current things that are keeping you interested? Well, I'm working a lot right now with what's called bioremediation. And okay. that's just using things in nature to take care of a situation, like a remedy, remediate. Okay. okay. If you have a toxic environment, let's say you have polluted water, how could you clean that up? Well, you could use other chemicals to clean it up, but those chemicals might either, one, be expensive, or they could be dangerous to other wildlife that are in that, let's say, a pond or a stream or something. So we're, we've been uh, using duckweed, which is a very common, a lot of people look at and see this green scum on the thing. They think it's some sort of green, gross stuff on top, but it might be duckweed. And what duckweed does is it pulls out a lot of waste out of a pond environment, so like a hog waste lagoon. 
or a city's runoff pond or someplace where there's too much fertilizer, too much nitrogen, too much phosphate, and it's polluting the water. Fish can't live in it because the you'll get these huge algae blooms. And even though algae you know produces oxygen at night, it's going to use that oxygen. Oh. And um, and in addition, the animals that are living in the water they're also using the oxygen. So by the time you know late night, early morning is starting, the oxygen has been pulled out of the water. Duckweed, what it can do is pull out that waste. And it grows rapidly. It loves it. It's like vitamins and minerals for a duckweed. So if it's in an area where it gets sunlight, because it's a plant, uh, it gets sunlight, it can grow and pull all that nitrogen out of the water. The only thing is you have to remove the duckweed And at then some what do you point. do with it? Well, then you can either, if you're a farmer, you could just pelletize it and feed it back to the animals like the pigs. You could um, use it as what's called green manure, where you just till it into the soil. You could compost it. There's you know a million things you could do probably with that. So as long as you end up removing the duckweed from the water and repurposing it, it's sort of beneficial once it gets back into the system. Exactly, because if you if you leave the duckweed on the pond, it'll pull all the nitrogen waste, it'll grow like crazy, but then it's going to... It'll grow like crazy. Well, it, it'll die eventually, <laughs> yeah. right? It has a, a lifespan. And when it dies, it just returns the nitrogen in its body right back to the water. So that's why you would have to remove it every, While every it's month still alive. or so. Right. Yeah, you would remove it. It covers the pond, and once it's covered the pond, you know that, okay, this pulled out as much as it's going to be able to pull out. It's time to remove it, and then it'll just you leave a little bit of sample behind, so it'll just regrow again. But it's amazing how fast it works. Some species of duckweed that they're using now for this bioremediation, it doubles every 36 hours. So you're talking like it's, it's exponential growth. So it's almost like a bacteria divides, and then those two divide, and it can cover a pond in no time. So do they now try to almost create duckweed ponds or do they only sort of plant the duckweed or, or begin the duckweed in an area that's problematic or do they are they now starting duckweed well, po- ponds specifically to harvest the duckweed? Well, they're not d- making a pond specifically for the duckweed unless it was a, you know, they were doing some research or yeah. tests to find the best kind. But a lot of it is done at NC State. They do a lot of work with um, different strains of duckweed one of our uh, one of our staff members here actually worked over there culturing the different kinds of of duckweed, and she's been really helpful to me because I'm not an expert in duckweed. I just found it very interesting, sure. and I said, "Hey, I'm going to have this in my lab." And so the duckweed would be given to somebody like you say, "Hey, let's put this on your pond and see if we can clean this mess up." You know, and they've been doing it in India and Bangladesh for decades. Oh, fantastic! But the problem there is that, like in India, they can pay people very low wages to go out with baskets and skim the duckweed off the surface, yes. whereas here in America, you're not going to pay somebody uh, just pennies to go out and just skim the duckweed off. So it's, they have to come up with a mechanized way to pull it off the ponds if you're going to be in a farming environment. Sure. So that's probably the next step. We have we have step. a mm-hmm. possible answer, but now we need to figure out how to make that a reality and economical. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things we're working on. Plus, in the lab, I'm always coming up with new experiments for the public to do. So we always have uh, different kinds. Like we have new specimens we want them to look at. So we've got fire ants. We have uh, ticks that, you know, people worry about ticks during this time of the year um, carrying disease. So I want them to be able to identify the different kinds of ticks. Like we have a lone star tick. And it's called that because it has a star on its back, like the star of Texas on its flag. And that one is very strange because it can create a meat allergy in a person. Most allergies people get are a protein-based one. This is actually a sugar that's in meat, and it can make them allergic to red meat. So they can't eat hamburgers, they can't eat steaks or whatever. And that's a very unusual allergy. Sure. And it can be carried by a lone star tick. Fantastic. So you you sort of answered um, the 
what my next question was oh. going to be, why it's important to study the natural world. But like you were just saying, the more you learn about these ticks and, and any other organism and, and its its impact and what it might be helpful to, what it might be harmful to, um, you know, it's just sort of very important to always be observant, always be learning and, right. and learn about the relationships among these different organisms and plants and animals. And Yeah, we have a, we actually have an experiment exactly designed for that, and it's with mosquitoes. So I have two mosquito diving chambers, and what the people do is they set up an experiment and they tap these tubes that have water in them, and mosquitoes want to dive when if they think there's danger. And what they have to find out is, are the mosquitoes diving to get into the dark to feel safe, or are they diving to get to the bottom to feel safe? And they find out that the mosquitoes are going to the bottom. You say, well, who cares what the mosquito larva is doing? It does it, who cares if it's going to the dark or the bottom? Well, it turns out that if you want to control mosquito populations, which is the number one killer in the world, it's it, uh, of all the animals on the planet, Mosquitoes kill more people than any other animal. We're scared of sharks and tigers and grizzly bears. It's mosquitoes that kill the most people in the world. So if you because of the diseases they carry, yeah, like malaria, number one. Um, if you know how they act, how they live, then you can go towards controlling them, so you can make better pesticides. It's like, well, if the mosquitoes go to the bottom whenever they feel scared, or it turns out whenever they feed, they go to the bottom. Put the pesticide, make something that goes to the bottom where it's actually going to get to them, right. and it turns out. Now that's what they do. <laughs> so, oh, isn't that great? Cool. It's very, very cool. Um, and so what advice would you give to students who are thinking about pursuing a career in science? Well, if, if they're lucky enough to have a museum like this or a science center, someplace like that, that they can go to, that's probably what I would recommend because there you can meet people that can help you. You can get involved in classes and programs that they have. You just have to ask, start asking questions when you get to one of those. And once you get involved, then you'll find out that there's all kinds of classes and things that they can get involved with um, at a science center. Or they can volunteer. Maybe they can even start volunteering. And then they really get uh, a feel for what it's like and how fun it is. And then they'll, they'll just go crazy because like, yeah, this is where I want to work. Absolutely. Know? And, and I, if they don't have that, they could, you know, I'm a big proponent of like books and learning as much as you can from reading and, um, and any kind of films like, you know, YouTube films on science and stuff. There's all kinds of ways to. Well, you bring up a great point. I know that, um, you know, as I'm sort of working with the walking classroom and I ask different people, at the minute you ask for help or the minute you ask, you show an interest or a curiosity, people are so willing to help and so willing to share their knowledge and to help you further your education. But it's really just a matter of asking. And, you know, sometimes that could be intimidating for kids to sort of, you know, ask to be pointed in what direction. And yeah. But I, I think that that's such a great way to start. And especially with teachers or different people in their communities or, you know, in their museum, just ask. And if, if somebody can't help you, they'll probably point you in the direction of, of somebody yeah. who can. Last question. Since this is the walking classroom, I have to ask, where is your favorite place to walk? Okay. I have several around Raleigh, but I would probably say we have a field station. It's called uh, Prairie Ridge Eco Station. And when it first was being developed, it was just like a farmer's field. But over the, like, it's been like decades now, a couple decades probably, they have built that out into a wonderful place with all kinds of planted trees from all around North Carolina and stuff. And I just love that area. They got a pond where you can do dip netting and find all these cool invertebrates. All these birds visit the area. And uh, it's just an amazing place to go for a walk. So I, I end up going there a lot. <laughs> and it looks like a good place to pitch a teepee? 
Yes, it would if, if they would let me. But it's you know, I'm not sure that's where you know where they're going. With that. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.